Hi guys and welcome to this week's episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast where I speak with some of the world's top creatives about how they've created a life of their own design. If you're not already subscribed, what you doing with your life? Go to comingupnext.com.au where you can find links to iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean and you can subscribe to this show and make sure that it hits your device, your iTunes, your whatever's. Uh, each and every week on the Tuesdays when it's released. Big shout out to my guest from last week, Tegan Higginbotham. Thanks for stopping by uh, and giving us a recap on the last three years of your life since our first conversation. Uh, some great, uh, great anecdotes, insights. I uh, really love chatting with her again on the show. And, um, you know, when I first spoke with Tegan the first time, we spoke about uh, one thing in particular, which was the idea of uh, when you're in high school, you know, how there was this, there's this teacher for a lot of people, for a lot of creatives. Uh, It's been a through line on the show that there's this teacher who really inspires your mind and, and, and uh, has encouraged you or certainly with me and with, with Tegan. Uh, We both had the experience of having a teacher who, you know, put their arm around our shoulder and, uh, and told us, you know, we can, follow our dreams, we can follow our passions and really nurtured that desire and uh, and that creativity well. This week, I, uh, I decided to go to the source. Ellie Erez has been teaching drama at Bialik College where I went to high school for coming up, I think this is his 23rd year now, well I know it is because he says it in about two minutes, you'll hear. Um, and so he's seen a whole multitude of students going through from uh, starting off with grades two and three all the way through to, uh, you know, your final years in, uh, in high school drama and uh, theatre studies, which I did both of. Uh, and yeah, I wanted to speak to him and see what it was like from his point of view to be encouraging young minds, you know, when he first started out, I, you know, when I was back in, in high school and how things have changed nowadays uh, and, and what, you know, what life for him has been like. Anyway, we get into that, get into the usual stuff and we get into it right now. Reflecting in the shower this morning and realised it had been 15 years since I finished high school. Wow. <laughs> wow. There's a lot of life lived in there. I mean, that's longer than you spend in high school. Um, and I guess the reason that I wanted to speak with you is because, you know, through doing this podcast, I've gotten to meet and speak with some incredibly uh talented and prolific creative types and the kind of there's that kind of through line uh of the teacher that really inspired the kind of journey or the or you know fanned the flames of the passion the person who really encouraged the 
student at the time to pursue this career. And for me, that was you. And I know that, um, you know, some of the people who I went to school with would say the same thing. Uh, in fact, I've had conversations with them where we've had similar sort of discussions. So it's really awesome to be able to go to the source, kind of, I guess. <laughs> I feel very honoured, Al, um, really uh, it's you know after 22 years of teaching you kind of wonder whether you know what you're doing is making an impact or or whether you know you sh should be looking at something else um, and and it's when you get these cards at the end of a year or when you you know reconnect with students that you haven't seen for for many years and and you're reaffirmed that what you're doing actually matters and actually counts and you know despite all the problems that you, you you encounter along the way it's it's just it's it's really very special so thank you for <laughs> for asking me oh, my pleasure uh, I guess you know despite the fact that we've known each other for 20 years now I guess um, I still feel as though I don't really know very much about you in terms of your life up to the point where I met you when I was 12 or 13 or however old I was at the time. So I guess I'd love to ask you some questions about your life and kind of how you arrived at, you know, working at Bialik and, and teaching, you know, kind of inspiring and influencing young creative minds. Did you, did you grow up, you grew up in Melbourne? I did. And whereabouts did you go to school? Well, I, st I went to many schools. Um, I started at Yavna College till about grade four. I wasn't actually um, very good at attending school. <laughs> I, I was school phobic, uh, or that was the diagnosis. I, I, I think I actually had anxiety issues um, and I, I didn't like school. It was kind of this, this weird um, space uh, that I just didn't think I belonged in. Um, and I think that there's, you know, I try and remember back to what incident or what event took place. And, and there were many that made me think this place is, and I don't, don't actually connect. Um, and it wasn't just Yavna, it was every other school I went to. Yeah. Uh, but one particular incident that, that I will recall... Um, was a cursive writing exercise where we had to, you know, across the letters, write the U and the V. I think that's where they were up to. Um, and I, um, in this class, we had to do the letter V and then a, an upside down U on top of the letter V to create little ice creams along the page. Right. And I wasn't really inspired by the exercise and I remember, you know, I can't remember what it, whether it was prep or grade one or what it was, but I remember thinking this is mind-numbingly boring and that I have to find a creative way of approaching this task. So I turned my letter U's into Dairy Queens <laughs> and, and created a whole, you know, page of, of V's with these very kind of creatively inspired Dairy Queens on top and I handed it in to the teacher at the time and she literally took a huge red pen and you know I had to do it all again and I remember thinking this is not a world I want to be in mm. and I didn't go for many many 
many days. Um, you know, I remember my parents celebrating. I, I, I got my report card back at the end of a year and it was 78 days in attendance, which was like 20 above what I had done in the previous year. And, and they were celebrating. And it, it, it just, it basically got from bad to worse at each school I went to. So I, I was a smart kid. You know, the work was sent home and I did the work. That wasn't the issue. It was just actually attending. Mm. And when I was there, um, I, I, it wasn't so bad, particularly on those days that there were rehearsals for productions. And that wasn't until high school. So that was the driving force that brought me to school. I knew that if I... And I guess that was the, the crunch of it. You know, that education for me equaled something that really didn't mean anything or didn't really um, connect. Uh, it wasn't until I was actually involved in a production where, you know, if my character didn't enter from upstage prompt or downstage centre or whatever it was, the show couldn't actually go on. So it mattered. Whereas if I didn't hand in my, you know, geography assignment on crop rotation in Papua New Guinea. Um, it didn't matter because yeah. he had another 24. So um, I kept getting removed from the school that I was in. Uh, at that stage, it was Yavna. And then from Yavna, I went to St. Leonard's. And from St. Leonard's, I went to Elwood. And then um, I was seeing a psychologist about the fact that I wasn't attending school because everybody else was worried. Not that I was worried, but Everyone else seemed to be very concerned about the fact that I wasn't going to school. What were you doing instead of going to school? I would sit at home, do the work that was sent home. I would watch television. I would do the homework during the commercial breaks. And I would build things out of Lego. And I would write scripts and, you know, do creative things that, you know, in a sense mattered to me. So it wasn't that you were kind of your parents were dropping you off at school and you were going no, down to the shops and no, smoking no, no, cigarettes. No, 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 no. There was like a conscious kind of. I I just didn't feel like this was a place where I belonged, yeah. and it, yes, so I did schooling by correspondence for a year, uh, and then I um, went back to Elwood, and eventually I found my feet at um, at Swinburne, where I I decided I wanted to pursue a film and television career. That was my, my big motivator. And uh, Swinburne obviously had a very um, good reputation in terms of their, their film and television course. It's now the VCA. Um, and that was the course that I wanted to get into. So if I did my year 12 at Swinburne studying media studies, I figured that was a nice shortcut into the, into the school. And... After I graduated, I applied for the film and television course and I got to the interview stage, which was lovely because they only accepted, I think, 80 at the time out of over a thousand people who, who applied. And I remember the moment that I bombed the interview. Uh, <laughs> they asked me the question, what, um, who my favourite film director was or what my favourite film was. And I said Steven Spielberg, Jaws. And I wanted to explain why, mm. um, you know, the POV shots and, and the way he built suspense and dramatic tension. And they weren't interested, clearly. They had, you know, I could have chosen anything on the Valhalla cinema catalogue, but I, I happened to choose a mainstream and that's not the mould that they were looking for. They wanted 
eight and a half by Fellini or... Yeah, possibly, uh, yeah. Susan Cain. <laughs> you came in the jaws. Exactly, yeah. yeah. At the very least, a Stanley Kubrick, you know, yeah, something yeah. something more arty, and, and I didn't offer that. So um, I decided to apply for some of the other media studies courses, and one of them happened to be Rusden, which happened to have a, a good reputation as well for film and television. And when I went to that interview, they said, look, you might think about applying through other departments, you know, to, to triple your chances, i.e. English and or drama. Now, I didn't have the score to get in through English, but the drama um, course was just an audition. And so I rocked along to the audition and it, it just happened to be, you know, one of those days where it the stars aligned and, and I got in through the drama um, stream and was offered a place in media. Uh, which I ended up dropping after the first six months and pursuing drama. And that was a four-year course, a Bachelor of Education, and I didn't actually think that I was going to use the the B.Ed. part of it. I just loved the process of creating theatre and, you know, working with these amazing people. And so I, you know, finished the course... Um, I remember at the end of second year, a lot of people went off to do NIDA or WAPA or, you know, one of the other VCA um, drama courses. And and I remember applying for all the, the forms and you had to tick the box, you know, what you wanted to do, whether you wanted to direct or act or stage manage or whatever it was. And um, in that year, I, I wasn't interested in doing anything other than all of it. Yeah. You know, I wanted to write and I wanted a set design and I wanted to create. Um, so, it, yeah, this course just happened to suit my needs because I could dabble in all of it, you know, experimental puppetry and whatever I wanted to do. And, and so I continued, I stuck it through and I ended up with a teaching degree um, with a whole lot of practical experience in, you know, creating and performing theatre. Um, and what to do with that degree? Uh, well, I, I ended up working freelance for three years um, before the Bialik College position came up. And I, um, I started... Um, well, I worked with Polyglot Puppet Theatre for three years, for those three years, um, doing, you know various contracts over a six-month or nine-month or three-month period, depending on what the contract was, uh, and uh, working with Music Theatre Australia, doing a number of their projects um, as a director, as a set designer, as a performer. So there was a, a number of projects. I wasn't out of work, if you know what I mean. Um, but it was an, about the third year when they um, handed out the audition list for the next year's projects that I started to think, you know what, this is, this is weird, you know, after three years, I'm still having to rock up to auditions and, you know, walk through hoops and jump mm. and do what they say and not being able to be offered, you know, something that, and I, and I remember saying to them, what is it that you actually want to see at this audition that you haven't seen me do over the last three years? And they said, oh, look, it's not like that. It's just that's the nature of the industry. And, and you know, you have to... It's not, a, um, it's not a company that works with an ensemble. 
yeah um every person has to step up each time and that's where they how they get the best i guess out of you know each production and i i thought long and hard about it and i thought i don't actually want to do that anymore i want to have a family and I want to, you know, eventually have a mortgage and I want to, you know, live a normal life. And it just happened that um, a a production that I'd done way back when I was in college, um, an orgious comedy review, uh, they, uh, the musical director, um, Sam Schwartz, um, was working at Bialik as the head of music and he said, uh, I'm not sure if you're interested, but there's a temporary position coming up at Bialik College. It's a drama teaching position. Um, you know, are you keen to sign up? And I did. And um, I guess the rest is a 22-year um, <laughs> history. Year camp yeah. <laughs> I never thought of it as being, you know, like I, I never saw my life past a three-year, five-year period. Yeah. Um, and once I kind of fell into the job and felt like, you know, all these skills, I was kind of a jack of all trades, master of none, um, but that I could draw on all of them um, and feel like I was making a difference rather than, you know, just being another piece of meat jumping through a hoop. Um, I I kind of relished the opportunity and, and the rest is history. Mm. Kind of ironic i guess that from someone who couldn't spend any time at school yeah to then spending all of your life <laughs> yeah. in school 22 years yeah about to start my 23rd year yeah, yeah. For, uh, a, for a kid who wasn't uh who was school phobic yeah not bad pretty good there's some dramatic irony in there yeah <laughs> so i wonder you know if you remember you know, you mentioned when you were at school, the thing that started to really drive you and, and motivate you to attend and to be immersed in a school culture was theatre. Do you remember the first time that you performed, maybe not even in a kind of uh, public sense, but the, your first kind of memory of, of, of drama or of um, uh, playing a character or something like that? I was doing it in primary school, like literally, you know, coming into school and organising little productions. I, you know, my parents remind me of the script I wrote for the class, um, you know, and I was coming in at lunch times with whatever kids would rock up and, you know, putting it together and directing it. I, it, was, it was basically in my blood. I loved it, you know. It was just this idea of, um, you know, bringing people together and and creating something that was better than the sum of the individual parts that were associated with the project. And I still feel that. Mm. And so I guess fast forwarding to when you started the temp job at Bialik, what was it like for you initially kind of stepping (laughs) into... Actually, the first... Because I had a a term where I I stepped into Emma Fredman's position. This was in 95, 96? I think it was 94, 94. Um, that I stepped in for a term and then the full-time position came up in 96. So I stepped in and it was literally hell. 450 students went through that drama studio and it was uh, a shoebox. It was a uh, portable and um, it was covered floor to ceiling in um, creative drawings and paints paintings that the kids had done um i think you know when emma was bored 
at any suitable time, she'd pull out a can of paint and say, you know, paint the walls. <laughs> and, and they did. There were unicorns and rainbows and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. But it, in terms of a workable space, I found it excruciatingly difficult to concentrate on what the kids were doing in the performance space because I kept getting pulled away by these fairy wings and unicorns, flying unicorns and what have you. So I took a big pot of black paint and I covered over the entire space and the kids came in and they were horrified, absolutely horrified. You know, what have you done to our artwork? And, you know, in retrospect, it wasn't probably the best thing to do, but I learned on my feet. And there was no curriculum. I mean, you know, if, if it was term one mask making, every kid from grade two to year 11 was doing mask making mm, yeah. on different yeah. levels, yeah, yeah. but there was no curriculum in place. So um, it was a case of coming in and working from scratch or creating a curriculum from scratch so that each year level they were doing something that, you know, was hopefully there was some sort of scope and sequence going on that would propel them to the next level and yeah so that was it was very complex because most of those kids I would see for a 40 40 minute 45 minute period once a week and if there were various events like you know a Jewish holiday or a sports event or they were away sick it might be four weeks or five weeks before I saw them again and so I learned very quickly that any process drama was kind of out of the question. I had to create one-off lesson plans, which was virtually like babysitting. And that's how I survived. And I would, I would go around the class, I would set up a little project, let's say they were doing, I don't know, fairy tales. Um, and I would go around to each group and I would say, okay, you're playing Papa Bear, Mama Bear, Baby Bear, Goldilocks, write down the name next to the kid who was playing that part and get them to do a presentation before the end of the lesson of the work that they had done and write, you know, as many comments as I could next to each of the characters' names. And that's what I used when I had to write the 450 reports after one term of seeing some kids for probably three lessons um, and when they invited me back in 96 um, and I actually was offered a job at Scopus as well um, in the same year I spoke to Jenya and I said look I, I love the school and I love the kids this and I the love the staff the that's right yeah. um, but there are a number of things that I would love to see changed and she was amazing, absolutely remarkable. And she said, we can do that. And every issue I had, she said, yep, we can solve that. We can do that. And um, that's how it came to be. <laughs> so, when, so when you were doing the temp job in 94, were you simultaneously sort of freelancing yeah. as an actor still? Yeah, that was kind of difficult. There was um, one time where I was working a full-time job um, whilst rehearsing one production whilst performing in another. Wow. Um, that was actually in uh, 95. Um, it was Falsettos. It was a musical that we were rehearsing whilst performing Rapunzel for Music Theatre Australia um, and working uh, temp work at the time. So it was, it was pretty full on. 
So when they offered you the job in 96, was there this kind of relief of, oh, yeah, yeah, let's have something with some stability or was there quite a lot of angst around making the choice to go, well, I'm going to have to, you know, maybe press pause on the acting world or did you just go, I'm going to try and do both or what was the... I did try and do both for a long time. I still worked with Music Theatre Australia. They were amazing because most of that work was on weekends, Friday nights and Saturday nights. It was corporate entertainment. So, you know, I'd finish work on a Friday and be flown up to Sydney to do an OPSM gig you know, and stay overnight at a five-star hotel, perform and fly, fly back on Saturday to rehearse with the students on Sunday for the next production. So it was, it was pretty crazy. And then I just got to a point where I, I fell out of love with performing. Um, I wanted, I, I, I guess it's control, you know, that um, uh, there's quite a a close connection I see with direction and and teaching Um, it's all about facilitating learning and it's all about creating and working with a group of people and I like to be in charge of that (laughs) I'm a control freak so any good director is I think yeah maybe (laughs) or bad director or bad director yeah any director yeah yeah so I guess there came a point about um 10 years into my career, I think it was, that I, I said goodbye to Music Theatre Australia. And um, I, I guess I, f- I started to feel a little bit like a high-priced prostitute, you know, that I wasn't actually enjoying the gig as much as getting to the gig in complete costume and makeup, where I was entertaining people on the way to my car and back from my car, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. Um, entertaining the people at the event was kind of like I feel like I'm I'm being paid an awful lot of money to just you know turn it on and turn it off at the the and and at someone else's behest yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I understand that yeah um do you remember what the first production that you did was because I met you <laughs> the first time I met you was when I was in a production not not as a teacher and that was in 97 um the scoundrel scapan no it was the inspector uh, inspector general inspector yeah general. and you were the police officer <laughs> yeah that's, that's right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um but i still had emma friedman i think as a teacher at that point that's in right. 96 and 97 when i moved to be alex so do you remember what the first production that you were put in charge um, of was the first production i did was way back in 94 from memory that was um Couch Potatoes, and it was... This was a Bialik. Yeah, Bialik production, year two and three production. So it involved 150 kids. How old are you? It's like seven and eight-year-olds. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Kill me now. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, It was fantastic. We did a show called Couch Potatoes, which I wrote. Um, It was a story about three kids who uh, sit down to watch a hell of a lot of television together and um, as a result get sucked inside this television and get transported to these wonderful, amazing um, creative worlds like the land of colour and the land of volume control and the land of contrast. And eventually they make their way back to, yes, to to their couch and decide that, you know, perhaps (laughs) there's a message there um, that, you know, we shouldn't spend our lives watching television. We should create our own worlds. And, um, yeah, so... 
to to make this work, we needed a giant television that we could fit the three kids inside at the point where they get sucked inside the television. And the kids kept asking, you know, when's it coming? When's it, when's it going to arrive? And uh, we had um, this moment when the television finally arrived. And, you know, I kept explaining how big it was going to be. It was going to be huge, enormous. And it got wheeled in and the spent weeks creating it and we were so impressed and unveiled it to the students and one of the kids put their hand up and said that's not big Jake Morgan's television is twice that size <laughs> I love that moment yeah that's funny um so what was the experience for you like of directing because I guess to this point if you'd done any directing it probably would have been adults yes um how did this experience contrast to that? I think it was fan- what I loved was the fact that uh, you know there were kids like Josh Glantz was one of the um, oh, wow yeah he was <laughs> one of those one of the year three students that got sucked inside the television mm. um, that what I saw were these little light bulb moments um, I call them eureka moments you know where kids discover something and and you. As a teacher slash director, you live that experience vicariously through their eyes. And it's those little, you know, eureka light bulb moments that really push you along and inspire you to, you know, to keep doing what you're doing. Because what you want is to create a place where kids can can discover and find and, you know, create and, and that philosophy I guess hasn't changed that's that's the thing that that you don't necessarily get when you're working with adults who are perhaps a little more cynical and (laughs) and and inhibited yeah yeah and potentially inhibited because kids approach things with you know with this sense of yeah I could do that Mm. if you create if you create an environment where where they feel safe to do so yeah so I've been using that eureka moment thing for forever and now I've just made the connection that it was from drama like as in the term and the kind of concept of striving to have that like in my work or when I'm writing a script or when I'm doing something it's like okay where's this eureka moment coming from where's it Uh, cool (laughs) yeah and you still use it I still use it yeah Yeah. I've Uh, been using it for 22 years there you go (laughs) it is it's like discovering gold yeah you know eureka found it yeah (laughs) so when you I guess you know, m- moving through that and then starting to do... So when we did the Inspector General, that was a senior school production. That's right. When did you start taking on that? I guess it could only have been within a couple of years. Yeah, it was pretty much in 96. We we would do back-to-back, we would do a, a senior school play and a musical. So pretty much for 30 weeks of my life per year, I didn't see my family on Sundays. Um, so it was pretty full on. Yeah. Uh, and then there became, they just get got squashed into the Bialik calendar, more and more events. So we decided that we would alternate between a musical and a senior school play. That was not really until 2001, 2000 and I think. I, th- I think it was a bit earlier. I remember it happening while I was there. Right. I always assumed it was right. a budgetary thing. No, it was more. It was more a uh, how. How is this really yeah, achievably right. sustainable? Yeah. Um, 
and and so we narrowed it down and you know thought we'd do one thing well mm. um you know our senior school productions as you know are still on the same scale as a musical they're they're still huge events but um we don't have to do two in the one year yeah yeah so what was the thinking behind choosing say something like the inspector general because it's a complex <laughs> narrative for people who are sort of 12 to 17. Yeah, well, I I felt that, you know, it was always good to aim for the stars. And if you hit the moon in the process, that was a good thing. And, you know, Russian farce, why not? Um, The year before we'd done French farce. So it seemed to me like a, you know, a a natural step. Um, And I remember when we did the Scoundrel Scapan the year before, um, I, I, you know, I approached Jenya, the, the principal at the time, and said, this is the script I'd like to do. And she said, absolutely wonderful. You know, a, a marvellous opportunity to introduce the students to Moliere. And um, and it wasn't until years later that I discovered that she actually studied it in French. Oh, wow. Um, and that she hated the play when she <laughs> was studying it. She loved the production, yeah. <laughs> apparently. Um, but she she hated the play. And was that through? Did she was she studying literature or drama? That she ah uh, through literature. Right. And I remember thinking that is an incredible principle. Someone who is prepared to back me, despite the fact that she you know has a personal dislike yeah. to the the play, she's prepared to say yes. This is this is you know something we'd like you to do. And I, I mean you know the government inspector. I, um, we've done however many Greek tragedies over the time. Um, it's really just about offering an opportunity for kids to experience more than just musical theatre as a way of, you know, opening their eyes to the possibilities of what can be done mm. um, and, you know, giving them experiences beyond their own. The visit, another... Yeah, that was the yeah, next year, wasn't it? the following it? year, 98. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, you know, for people like myself and Jesse Velick and Josh Balbin, you know, the kind of drama kids of my class of Bialik, the approach created an like created an excitement whereby this particular moment of the calendar year was always what we looked forward to, you know, and what we and were not, excited by. And not just you, but the community. They, you know, there was a, an incredible, and there is an incredible support for for the arts um the families that come along and attend the productions that you know that's what makes it live Mm. yeah yeah what's it like from your point of view to see i guess using me and jesse and whomever else from that kind of generation that you remember what's it like to kind of see that journey from 97 to 2002 where we've kind of walked into an, an audition room and you've cast us in our first play to, you know, doing year 12 drama, year 12 theatre studies in 2001, 2002, and kind of completing that arc or that narrative of uh, high school drama. Yeah. Oh, look, I have so many students who have gone on to become, you know, international bankers. They've finished year 12 drama, and, and, and I used to bemoan the fact that they, they haven't used their incredible talents to pursue a career in the arts. But now I'm very much of the mindset that, you know, it doesn't matter what 
the student wants to pursue with their life. You know, what matters is that they will take away the skills that they've gained through their arts experiences and apply those to whatever they do. So, you know, the ability to collaborate, the the, the self-confidence that they've gained, the the you know, the leadership skills, the problem-solving skills, those real life lessons are the things that they're really gaining. And I guess more and more it's not... Uh, I've learned that it's not about what we produce in terms of the artistry of what we create, but it's about the life lessons that they're learning through the experience of creating that work. Um, so I, I guess I've become a little bit of a philosophical wanker over the, <laughs> over the years. Well, you have to be, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> part of a natural evolution. It's probably an excuse for, you know, when the, shit, when the show's really shit. Yeah. You know, that it's not really about the performance, it's about the prose. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's uh, after the fact, but in terms of like during that, uh, during that time, what I, I suppose what I'm, what I'm wondering is what's it like for you to see... Um, you know, your students growing over this quite, you know, over a five or six year period of time? It, it's so gradual that you don't actually realise it until, you know, they've hit year 12 suddenly and you think, oh my God, these kids have just rocked their year 12 performance, you know, solo, ensemble, whatever it was, um, and created this incredible work. Um, but that, that foundation... Uh, has been you know richly developed over those five six years that you've been working with them um, but you know kids like Jesse Valick kids like Josh Glantz kids like yourself you know they have that spark within them all you're there doing is offering opportunities for them to further develop and, and build on that um, but it's there it's you know the kernel is there um, and I guess what I'm learning more and more is that every kid has it. It's about how you, you know, find a way of unlocking it. Mm. I guess, yeah, within their own sort of passion or, or it's probably the wrong word, but the thing that kind of lights them up or their interest up at that kind of young age, it's just about finding what that is and working out, like you say, how you unlock it. Yeah, yeah. What was do you, do you remember what your first impression of me was when I walked into, the, <laughs> into that audition? I remember. In I, I remember just thinking how brilliant it would be to have this tiny little police <laughs> officer bossing all these characters around on stage, and that this would be comic genius <laughs> if I could get you to find your inner police officer and and the strength and confidence that that character needed. Um, but you blew me away at that audition. That was that was. You've rocked it. <laughs> yeah. I remember one thing that I remember was that, uh, that I, rem- I have a, a vague memory of you telling me how loud my voice was. And, yeah. And that's something that I'd always remembered was that I had just this uh, naturally projected my voice as opposed resonance to... Resonance. Yeah. Beyond resonance. Yeah, it was, it was um, incredible. Yeah. That's quite funny. I never really thought about the... The, the contrast in because I, I remember I had scenes with uh, Paul Gleaser and he was twice your size twice my size at least yeah uh, so I n- never thought about the kind of visual gag of that but that's quite funny because I would have been like five foot if that I know time. but with this booming voice mm. yeah well, that's cool 
you, you touched on before briefly about what it's like when you see students, you know, at finishing school and uh, you've, how you've become quite philosophical. But I guess on a, uh, not a practical level, but in terms of people who actually are out uh, in the arts world, whether or not it's their primary source of income or whether it's something that they're pursuing uh, concurrent to a full-time job or whatever, what's it like for you to, to see your students achieving success or struggling or kind of trying to make a life in the arts? I guess it's, it brings me back to that experience, you know, in my third year of working freelance where I realised how hard it was to continually do what you do and, and still pursue it with that passion and commitment because I really only was able to last three years before I went, you know what, I, I, need, a, I need a sea change because um, this, this lifestyle is, is just too hard and I, I am blown away. I'm completely in awe of those students who despite all the negatives and particularly I think in the Jewish community where you know you have this sense of okay you have to achieve some sort of economic success Mm. um, in order to be recognized um, in our culture um, that I admire so much those that you know put their finger up at at that mentality and understand that their real worth comes from what they do and not how much they earn and and that they're prepared to put all of that you know at risk um you know i always said to my students you will earn a living you know it might not be a great living you can always have clothes on your back you will always have food in your mouth you will if you're passionate about following this career, um, don't expect, particularly in theatre, don't expect to, you know, to be the new Kate Blanchett mm. or the next Rachel Griffiths. Um, that's too hard, you know. Um, that's too hard a goal. Well, you're basically setting yourself up to fail. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you want it badly enough... You absolutely must pursue it with your heart and soul and know and trust that everything else will fall into place. You'll still have food in your stomach and clothes on your back. Mm. Might not be designer, but, you know, (laughs) so what? If you go to Bali, you can get the knockoffs. That's it. That's it. (laughs) What are some of the challenges that you would face in, you know, because even... Uh, you know, I guess despite the fact that people like Jesse and myself loved drama, we would still, and I remember, you know, try and push as kind of far to the edge of the envelope as we could go <laughs> and probably even overstep the boundaries from time to time, you know, and I guess it's a adolescent thing, but what are some of the challenges that you face in trying to maintain or rein in or whatever that kind of creative energy? Um- I don't know. I think I, I do trust that, that there is an inner voice inside every kid that tells them, you know, where that line is in the sand. And sometimes they need to be reminded, but they're pretty good. You know, they're, they're pretty responsible. I, I've just been very blessed, um, particularly with productions. Inside class time, um, you know, there have been students that, that have 
push the boundary too far and you know you have to call in the big guns and and follow the due process but they're rare thankfully and and you know the thing that I think saved um, drama as a subject was the decision to make um, drama a, a, a a, an elective from year seven onwards. So we have core drama at year six, and then from year seven up, the students actually get to choose. And going back to my experience of being school phobic, I think that was the biggest thing that really, really irked me, not having choice. If geography was doing crop rotation in Papua New Guinea, every student in that class was doing crop rotation in Papua New Guinea, despite the fact that I might have loved the Amazon rainforest. So I want students to have real choice about what they want to do. And even if they choose drama, you know, the role that they play in the the performance that they're presenting at the end of the term and or the production role that they're you know, filling, um, I want them to have real choice beyond the creative decisions of how they're interpreting the role or how they're going to, you know, design the set or the costume or the lighting for that event, ideally. So it's all about choice. Mm. And I think once students have real choices, they're not going to play up because they're going to make choices that ultimately, you know, you hope um, are going to be good for them and the other students that they're working with Mm. are you still uh you're still performing uh with you do it you have a a, a band (laughs) yeah we have a gig coming up on the 10th of feb um at the mentone rsl you know the palagio in in las vegas wanted us but (laughs) we just said no it's too far to travel so we're doing the mentone rsl right it's a ridiculous 80s mime stational um rock band called cleavage and <laughs> we we just dress up in ridiculous costumes and do pretty much what lay girls used to do but but we're not in drag yeah we just mime 80s music um <laughs> and dance around a bit and this is something that you do to satiate that I, I i still love to perform and this is just you know it's very rare with my schooling commitments to find opportunities to do that outside of school because of the amount of hours that are involved in in both you know my my school world and my vcaa world and my drama victoria world and you know the various other hats that i wear so here is an opportunity for us as a group to get together and it's actually a group of friends it's not like we're rehearsing we just get together have a whole bunch of you know food and and a few drinks and then put some 80s music on and start dancing (laughs) and then think okay we'll weave that into the show and yeah so it's it's not really performance it's just us mucking around on stage and inviting Mm. an audience that sounds like fun it does yeah um (laughs) we figure if we're having a good time the audience will as well (laughs) it's usually a good assumption i think yeah so i guess just to kind of wrap up how have you seen drama in the education system kind of evolve over the last 22 years and and what would you kind of hope to see happen in going forward uh i guess some of the problems reoccur you know there's there's an association that drama is not a real subject in some people's minds um that 
somehow it's a lesser subject. And I think there are a lot of really amazing people that are, are advocating for drama on a national level that are doing an amazing job. John Saunders, president of Drama Australia, um, just to name a few, um, he's an incredible ambassador for drama education and the research that he has at his fingertips about how drama changes people, uh, changes lives and why it matters um, is is really extraordinary. If you ever have an opportunity to, to speak to him or to listen to him at a conference, he's, he's an amazing person. Um, so it, it's, it's out there and it's just being... V- uh, a, a case of um, being vocal about it and reminding people about this research that exists that proves why drama is so important and needs to be not just an add-on but actually central to the curriculum. If we're you know, teaching kids about um, uh, water, how, how can we make them engage in an understanding of this incredible resource and what can we do to make them feel an empathy and understanding for those who don't have water um drama is the best subject to to engage that um there's incredible research about they they had these um rhesus monkeys where they put a bowl of peanuts in front of them um behind a glass and measured their brain waves as they looked at these this bowl of peanuts and virtually nothing was going on until the scientist reached into the bowl of peanuts and actually started eating them in front of the monkey mm. and the neurons that were going on inside the monkey's brain um, proved that it, it was almost like the monkey was eating the peanuts himself um, that we have these as humans, we have mirror neurons, we have an automatic understanding of how to empathize um, with other humans and creatures. So that's an important skill to develop if we are going to be a better civilization, a better and create a better world. And I think slowly but surely, um, science neuroscience and science is catching up to what drama teachers have known all, all along and and that's i think the exciting development as we move into you know this 21st century um that's the exciting development that's that's starting to take shape mm. i think that the arts in general in australia are not upheld in the same way that they are in say european various european countries yeah. and even in um parts of America as well where certainly my experience in being in high school was that to pursue a career as an actor or as a filmmaker or a painter or whatever that's not really that's what you do as your hobby while you're doing your (laughs) real job you know and that was the kind of I mean I was I was personally never of that mentality but uh, I could certainly see that that was a, a kind of mindset for a lot of people and I guess it's nice to see or nice to... That wasn't me, by the way. <laughs> um, nice. It's, it's nice to understand or know that there's kind of a paradigm shift happening or hopefully happening with that because I think that it is important for young minds to understand that 
you know, to pursue a career in the arts is just as valid as to p- pursue a career in finance or science or, you know, any of those other things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you remember um, any eureka moments that I might have had? Oh, wow. Um, I, I guess I'm pretty egocentric, so I think about it from my perspective. Um, but yeah, the, the productions that you worked on, you know, I, I remember lots of eureka moments in those in those productions. Oedipus was a classic, you know, eureka moment for me as a um, working in an outdoor environment and creating a, a project of that scale inside our, you know, Theban city that we created. Um, that was pretty amazing. Yeah. A little shop of horrors, um, you know, the working with puppets again um, after so many years and and well, we actually we worked with puppets in Oedipus as well yeah 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 uh, it was me and Teresius and Zoe Winograd yeah memory yeah that three well it was one thing one that, puppet one puppet that had three voices yeah we were playing with that notion of the Teresius being part man part woman yeah um and hermaphrodite a That's blind right. hermaphrodite yeah. and the fact that he was he, she was um, a, a almost like a demigod, a, a seer of the future. That we we created this giant puppet that the three of you operated. Mm. Yeah, that was extraordinary. Yeah. With pyrotechnics underneath. That's right. <laughs> and that big it was it was this, like you created like a giant sand pit almost. Yeah. That you sat the audience. Yeah. Like it was like a. And the Amazon rhythms around the the, right. the outskirts perimeter. In those huge masks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow. Man, what a time. That was a great, great time. 2000, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Or was that Little Shop of Horrors? That was 2000. No, 2000 was... And we also, in 2000, did uh, Circus Bialicus. Right. I don't think I was part of that. That was uh, for the younger year levels. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, and then, yeah, I remember a Little Shop of Horrors workshop. 2001? Yeah, I remember yeah. workshopping. We did, that was at the Phoenix Theatre, wasn't it? In, That's right. Is that uh, not Elstonwick? Uh, yeah, Elston? Elwood. Elwood. That's right. Uh, I remember workshopping that monologue, the weird Wink Winkleson <laughs> monologue. With you. you still remember the character's name? Well, I think we changed it to Winklestein. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember because it was the part that John Candy played in the, That's right. the film. Yeah. Which was actually an add-on. Shh, don't tell copyright. We would get in a lot of trouble, I think. But um, <laughs> yeah, we actually added that film moment back into... Yeah, right. And, and gave you the opportunity to improvise around what John Candy had done. That's right. Because, yeah, we basically wrote... Rewrote it. We had the scene as it played out, but because there's like a kind of prelude into the scene... Um, we just rewrote that part entirely. And I remember doing lots of, like, I did, like, a Russian voice and uh, <laughs> I did a few other voices I can't remember. I remember you trying to get me to do a Cuban voice and I couldn't couldn't get the accent. <laughs> Strange what you remember. Um, thank you so much, Ellie, for sitting down and chatting it's with me. It's been a joy, an absolute joy. Um, Al, thank you so much. Uh, absolutely my pleasure. Yeah. Um, I, I end all of the conversations on this podcast with the same question. question is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Uh, I think I haven't really grown up fully. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm a child inside an adult's body, um, a, a very old adult's body now. But the 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 thing that keeps me silly is that 
childhood spirit, that sense of play. So I think that's that's where it comes from. How do you go into that, like outside of teaching and putting on productions um, and doing eighties? <laughs> there's in in psychology terms. There's the I, I think I've talked talked to you about this before. There's the ego and the id. Yeah, and the id is the subconscious self that wants to play and and be silly and and ridiculous and you know have a good time and then there's the ego that constantly tells the id don't do that that's just a bit that's going to look that's going to that's that's actually professional suicide or <laughs> social suicide at the very least and and you shouldn't really you know jump around in 80s costumes on stage i guess the trick to being a performer slash director is that you have to let go of the ego and you have to be able to tap into the id and allow yourself to be silly and allow yourself to make mistakes and fall over and and learn how to fall to make people laugh. I don't know. It, it's just a license, in a sense, to be silly. And I, I guess that's the, at the heart of it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ellie. Genius. Genius. <laughs>